Uh, I now want to welcome uh, Noemi Campos to come and read today's scripture. Uh, we have the pleasure of her reading that for us in Spanish. And if you don't know Spanish, it's printed in English in your bulletin. So, Noemi, please come. Nacimiento de Jesucristo. El nacimiento de Jesucristo fue así. Estando desposada María, su madre, con José, antes que se juntasen, se halló que había concebido del Espíritu Santo. José, su marido, como era justo y no quería infamarla, quiso dejarla secretamente. Y pensando él en esto, he aquí un ángel del Señor le apareció en sueños y le dijo, José, hijo de David, no temas recibir a María tu mujer, porque lo que en ella es engendrado del Espíritu Santo es. Y dará a luz un hijo y llamará su nombre Jesús, porque él salvará a su pueblo de sus pecados. Todo esto aconteció para que se cumpliese lo dicho por el Señor por medio del profeta cuando dijo, He aquí una virgen concebirá y dará a luz un hijo y llamará su nombre Emanuel, que traducido es Dios con nosotros. Y despertando José del sueño, hizo como el ángel del Señor le había mandado y recibió a su mujer, pero no la conoció hasta que dio a luz a su hijo primogénito y le puso por nombre Jesús. This is the word of the Lord. If I were to ask you, what is the most repeated command in the entire Bible, what would you say? What would your answer be? Uh, it's probably important to know that it is not related to money or to power or to sex or any of the other topics that we tend to associate biblical commands. Uh, rather, the most repeated command in the entire Bible is given to Joseph in verse 20, and that is a simple command, do not fear. Do not be afraid, fear not. This command occurs upwards of 365 times in the Bible. And if you were to include the, uh, the command to fear God, which implicitly means that we do not fear anything else except God himself, if you were to include that reverence for God, that number increases to over 500 times. So let it be known that this command, just by sheer times it is stated, is absolutely one of the most important commands that you and I could possibly obey because time and time again, God makes clear that we ought not to fear. Now, if you've been with us, uh, we started a series looking at the most pivotal event in human history, which is the coming of Jesus. Uh, the day that the God of all history stepped into history in order to be close to us, close enough to experience our pain. He came close enough to identify with our suffering and to accomplish a work that you and I could not accomplish. And in this Advent season, we reflect on and we consider with eager expectation the coming of Jesus. And historically, the church has celebrated Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, essentially to look back to the coming of Jesus the first time and to look ahead to the coming of Jesus again. We look back to centuries past and are reminded that the people of God waited for the coming of their Messiah. 
They were waiting for the salvation of God. And today, even though we are on the other side of the coming of Christ, and we know the plan of God in Jesus, we, a lot like people of ancient past, before Christ, we too long for and yearn for and await the return of our Savior. And we consider how faithful he has been in the past so that we can trust that he will continue to be faithful into the future. This is the purpose of the Advent season. And today, in the midst of that reflection, we hear the most constant biblical refrain, do not fear. Now, if, uh, if you were here with us last week, you know that we looked at a portion of this passage. Um, last week, we looked at the beauty of the genealogy uh, and what's found in the genealogy in Matthew 1, which was really summarized in verse 17. Uh, but today, we're going to hone in on this well-known story of Mary and Joseph and see the context for the command that is given do not fear. And I pray that while this repeated command um, may be a familiar one to us, I pray that we hear this command, we understand this command as a command that we really do desperately need to constantly come back to in order to obey well. And so with that in mind, let's consider several things. First, uh, let's take a look at why they feared, why Mary and Joseph feared. Uh, then we'll consider why we fear and then we'll take a look at why God says, do not fear. Okay, so first, why did they fear? Uh, this command, do not fear, again, is found in verse 20. Uh, but it's also worth noting that while here in this passage that command is being given to Joseph, uh, it's worth noting that in the book of Luke, Luke records that same statement being made to Mary. Now, again, uh, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about this, but Luke's narrative uh, particularly focuses on the women in the story of redemption. And so Luke focuses a lot of his attention on Mary. Joseph, uh, Matthew rather, focuses a lot of his attention on Joseph because of the nature of what he's trying to communicate, which is to communicate that Jesus comes from the line of David, uh, King David, which would come through Joseph, which is why we see Joseph emphasized here in this passage. And what's interesting is that the context of why they are fearing is really worth considering because though we don't live in the same time period as them and though we might not find ourselves in the exact scenario that they find themselves in, I think we'll see that the human experience of fear is pretty universal, that we can identify actually very closely with their fear. Now the story, which um, again is a very well-known one, it's essentially this, that Mary and Joseph, they are betrothed. Uh, we would probably define this uh, much like an engagement, uh, but for them it was far more significant than the way that we treat an engagement. In that time and culture, to be betrothed to another was essentially a marriage covenant that had not yet been consummated. And so because of that, it couldn't be left arbitrarily. Uh, the way that we might leave uh, a, um, an engagement, but rather, at this stage, it would require them going through the formal process of divorce. Now, Mary would have been uh, probably between the ages of 12 to 14, 16 at the oldest. Joseph would have probably been between the ages of 18 to 20, and their parents would have likely arranged this marriage uh, with their consent 
But of course, as we can imagine, being in this binding covenant, this marital relationship with someone that you might not know very well, or at least not, in the, not to the extent that you would expect to see uh, in a trusted marriage relationship and covenant, this is the scenario that they find themselves in. And in the midst of this fragile, early stage of betrothal, Mary becomes pregnant. Now, adultery back then, like many places still today, a very problematic thing for this child to be the result of um, an affair because, as we're told, Joseph had not known her. They had not been together sexually. They had not consummated this relationship. And so Mary becoming pregnant, of course, is a problem, and Joseph had every right to pursue divorce if Mary had been unfaithful, which, of course, would then expose Mary to public shame. A woman with a child divorced for infidelity would be hard-pressed in this time to find another husband, uh, leaving her without any means of support, especially if her parents were to die, she would be left destitute. And so Joseph, we see in verse 19, in order to try and mitigate the backlash and the fallout against Mary, this woman that he loved, he decided not to expose her to public disgrace, but would attempt to leave her quietly. Now, knowing this story and knowing the full context of the story, we do tend to have quite a bit of compassion, I think, for Mary and her situation. However, I also don't think it's too hard for us to empathize with Joseph as well in the the shoes that he's finding himself in. If you can imagine being a man who is about to marry his fiancée, but then finds out that she's pregnant, and her response to the pregnancy is, I wasn't unfaithful. God did this. I don't think it would be hard to imagine that Joseph would be justified in bowing out of this relationship. This, of course, though, is the context of why they feared. But the question is, what was it that they feared? What was unique about their fear? You know, something that I find interesting about the story is not just the fact that they are both told do not fear. I find it interesting when they are told do not fear. Uh, in Mary's, or in, in Luke's account, uh, when the angel comes and speaks to Mary, he tells Mary, do not fear, before she becomes pregnant. Here, in this account, according to verse 18, Joseph is told after she becomes pregnant. I find that interesting, that the angel would come to them at different times of this pregnancy. So consider that and keep that in mind as we think about, well, why were they afraid? You know, there's probably many things that they could have feared. If, if I were to imagine Mary's fear is likely rooted in losing the security that she's about to attain in this marriage. There's probably fear that no one would accept her and that she would be shamed and that she would be exposed, even if it's not right. For Joseph, he too would have experienced a level of shame that his wife betrayed him that she was unfaithful, that he too was about to lose everything that he'd expected his life to be. And then on top of that, an interesting uh, piece to the story, uh, again, in Luke's account, when Mary is told, do not be afraid, she's told that she has found favor with God. Here in our passage in verse 18, it says that Joseph was faithful to the law. The reason why those two things matter is because these were likely people that would have been viewed as upstanding 
godly people, and this potential scandal would absolutely rock their lives to the core. Right? There's a lot riding on God's promises being fulfilled to them, because if they don't, it's the end of everything that they expected their life to be and could result in destitution. But both of them were really ultimately put in a position of having to trust God's word as actually being trustworthy. And both of them needed to have a willingness to submit themselves to the will of God, ultimately leaving them in a place of uncertainty with nothing but a command from God do not fear. It's all they had. But that's their fear. I wonder for us, why do we experience fear? What do you fear? You know, I think it's easy to identify again with the the fear of Mary and Joseph, but I do wonder what we fear. What keeps us up at night? I do wonder, what if taken from you, would completely upend everything that you believe that your life is about, your purpose, your meaning, the trajectory of your life. We all have those fears. Even now, as I say this, you can begin thinking of certain things that completely upend what you expected life to be. Uh, Chapman University, over the last several years, uh, has established a poll where they track people's greatest fears. And they've done this year over year for a number of years. Uh, It's really interesting, actually, to see how the top fears have changed over the course of even like the last five years. I don't have time to get into it. If it's something you're uh, interested in nerding out on, you can do that later. But um, it's been really interesting. And in 2018, which was the last time they compiled their list, uh, these were the top fears, okay? Number one. This was the, the number one fear in 2018, Corruption in government. Number two was pollution. Number three was not having enough money for the future. And number four was people that we love becoming sick. Those were the top fears in 2018. Now, what's interesting to me is that as I read that list, uh, much like the fear of Mary and Joseph, that list just screams the fear of uncertainty of the future and a fear of our inability to ensure security in the future. I mean, think about them. Corruption in government. Uh, We live in a time when so much of people's hope is wrapped up in who is in power in government. We see this over and over again. And so, sure, there's great fear that there would be corruption in that government if we believe that it's government that provides us our ultimate hope and security for the future. Uh, pollution, the other one. I, you know, I believe that we should be good stewards of the planet in which we have been entrusted, uh, and we certainly have not been good stewards, and so our planet is being affected by it. However, so many people do find their worth and their pleasure, or their, their worth and value in the pleasures of this world. It's all that they have to cling to, and so the planet's suffering can rock people's foundations if this is all that you have. You know, not having enough money for the future. That one seems obvious. I think that's probably a pretty universal and common fear that we fear the unknown and our inability to have enough. 
you know, it's interesting is, uh, you know, I, I believe in savings, I believe in retirement accounts and being wise and the whole gambit of things. But there are many who put so much hope and security in those accounts and the strength of those accounts. The last one of people being, uh, people that we love becoming sick. To be honest with you, if I, when I look at those top lists, that would probably be one that would be uh, for sure the toughest for me. Having those that I love get sick or to be harmed, especially when I am powerless to do anything about it, it's easily my greatest fear uh, that my wife or my daughters get fatally sick or are harmed in some way and I'm not able to stop it. Absolutely a fear. You know, this world can be a very dark and broken and excruciatingly unfair unkind, relentless place. And as I begin to talk about fears, I know that many of you now can begin thinking about the fears that you have in your own lives and in the lives of those that you care about. You know, when we think about not only our, our little world, but we think about the world at large, there is a lot to fear it's one of the reasons why every single week we set aside time in our prayers of the people to bring before God the various concerns that we have living in this world impacted and marred by sin. Because we will never run out of things to lament and to cry out to God for. We fear the unknown, the uncertainty of what is to come, the inability to control the future, and the inevitability of experiencing the consequences of our sin and the sins of those around us. Are these not so often the reasons that we fear? But here's what I want us to know. Is that you and I, we cannot appreciate this season. We cannot appreciate the substance of Advent without confronting that fear and the darkness in which that fear resides. Because Christmas means nothing without first acknowledging that darkness. Christmas means nothing without realistically looking at a world full of nightmares. Christmas means nothing without reflecting on the nightmares inside our own heads, inside our own hearts. Fleming uh, Rutledge, who's an Episcopal priest, uh, she wrote a sermon entitled, Advent Begins in the Dark. And in it, she emphasizes our need to not jump to the celebration of Christmas too quickly without first uh, considering the darkness that precedes that celebration. And this is what she says about that. If we do, if we do jump too quickly, she says that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take the fearless inventory of the darkness she goes on to say, and this, this portion of her quote is in the reflection portion of your bulletin. She says that the authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing to someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time. Advent begins in the dark, she says. 
Now today, I ask you to not turn away from the darkness. And I also ask you to not allow yourselves to get swallowed up by the celebrations and the thousand different ways that we can distract ourselves from confronting the reasons why Jesus came. You know, the sentimentality of Christmas too often can strip Christmas of its power because sentimentality does not allow us to wrestle deeply with our condition and the condition of this broken world, marred by sickness and death. It's this condition, this dark and broken world that gives context for why Jesus has come. And so how has this broken, violent, uncaring world impacted your life or the lives of those around you? Again, I ask, what do you fear? Don't rush past it. Don't ignore it. And here's the tension I have as I've been processing and thinking about this, take this one step further. You know, what is one of the things that drives the fear that we have? You know, for me, I think one thing that drives the fear that I might have is the knowledge that my greatest fears could 100% happen. They could come true. When we look at the world around us, we are reminded that our worst nightmares could literally just be waiting around the corner. I mean, consider the fears of the the list that I just had mentioned. We could, and many of us have been, and maybe will be into the future, subject to corrupt governments. Of course, that could happen. You know, whatever money we have now, we might not have in the future. There is always a 2008 crash just right around the corner waiting for us. The ones that we love most could absolutely get sick. And absolutely could even die. And some of us here know that all too well. And if you do, our heart breaks with you. But of course, there's other fears that are not on that list that could absolutely happen. Some have relational fears of maybe never finding a spouse, even though there is a desire for one. Others have fear of maybe never having children even though there's a desire for some. Others, there is a fear of losing reputation or success or never achieving your dreams. I don't know all that is on your list. But isn't part of the fear knowing that it could happen? Maybe it's already begun to happen. So many of our fears are not irrational, but possible. And yet, even in the midst of that darkness, even as we stare at that fear that we know could produce our worst nightmares, God says time and time again all throughout his word, do not fear. But what if our greatest fears, what if they do come true? What good is God's command, do not fear, if our greatest nightmares, the things that we fear could actually happen? That leads me to my last point of why God says, do not fear. You know, there's really two explanations uh, that I could give you as to why God gives this command. Both of which, I could give you lots of biblical examples to back up. Uh, One of them might be the all-too-common belief uh, that, and I, I believe this, well, let me put it this way. 
One of them I find to be incredibly insufficient, one of these two perspectives. The other one I find to be far more sufficient. Let me unpack those a bit for you. First, the insufficient reason why God might say, uh, do not fear, is the all-too-common belief that God says, do not fear, because if we just trust him enough, then he will bless us, he will give us what we want, and he will keep us from experiencing the worst of what we fear. And I could give you lots of biblical examples to try and prove why that is the case. That God, if you just do not fear, he will not allow you to experience the content and the substance of that fear. I could give you examples, really beautiful, marvelous examples of what God has done all throughout Scripture. In Genesis 21, for example, you have the story of Hagar, who was a woman who had been horribly mistreated by uh, Abraham and Sarah. She is sent away with her son Ishmael. She is abandoned in the wilderness. And while she is in the wilderness, she runs out of water, and fear grips her because now she knows the only thing left for her to do is to watch her son die of thirst. For many of us, that would be the greatest fear. But then an angel comes, and an angel says, do not fear. And as a result, they come across the well, come across a well, and they are saved. And so I could say, just have faith like Hagar and watch God intervene. Or another example would be in Exodus 14. Uh, the people of God, Israel, they have left bondage in Egypt. Uh, now the Egyptians have realized that they did not want the Egyptians to go away, and so they chase after them. Uh, and now the Israelites are gripped by fear that the Egyptians are coming. There is great fear, and so Moses comes and he says the word of the Lord to the people, Do not fear. The Lord will fight for you. And subsequently... After he says this, you have the story of the parting of the Red Sea. They're saved. And so I could say, just have faith like Israel and watch God intervene. Or another story, 1 Kings 17, the story of the prophet Elijah. He comes to this poor widow who is literally preparing to die for lack of food. And Elijah comes to her and essentially says to her, Do not fear. The Lord God will not allow you to starve. And what happens next is that in the end, the jars and the flour and the oil that were once empty, they're now full. And God saves her. And so again, I could say, have faith like the widow and watch God intervene. But is this the reason why God says, do not fear? Because if we trust him, then he will certainly intervene. I do not think that this is why God gives us this command. And I do not think that is a sufficient reason. Because there are other examples throughout Scripture where things don't end the way that I just described. For example, in Lamentations, the entire book of Lamentations was written as a lament for the, his, uh, the horrific way in which Israel had been conquered. There's terrible pains and anguish as a result of unimaginable violence against them. They lost everything dear to them. They lost their nation, their great city, their great temple. Their children had been brutally murdered. Others were raped and carried off as slaves. And in the midst of that terrible suffering, 
the author of the book reminds the people of God that God had come to them, came near to them, and said to them, do not fear. Yet, here they are in the depth of pain that most of us cannot even fathom. So what is God talking about? Do not fear. Another example would be the prophet uh, Jeremiah, who is speaking to those same people who have been taken into captivity that are in exile. They have been in captivity, and now they're losing, or now they're fearing that they're going to lose all sense of their identity as a people. And it's there that you have the famous passage in Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a famous verse where God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. It's a verse that is so often declared with a belief that nothing shall befall me if I trust in the Lord. And yet, what's interesting is in the very next chapter, God says, Fear not, O Israel. Behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. But what's interesting is that despite this promise, do not fear. Nearly everyone who heard that promise by Jeremiah died in captivity. It would be 70 years before they would be set free. So what good was this promise, do not fear, if in the end they didn't experience salvation from their captivity. Now, I'm, telling, I'm saying all of this to you because I want to drive home for you the alternative perspective. I want to drive home for you another way to consider why God says, do not fear. It is not just because God is saying, if you have enough faith in me, I will not let you suffer. Because we all know suffering happens, even for those who are faithful to God. And so the far more sufficient reason why God says do not fear is this, is God says do not fear because his plan far exceeds our plan even when our greatest fears come true. That is why God says do not fear. He says to trust me no matter what happens. God gives this command 365 times because No matter what befalls you, and no matter whether or not he intervenes and keeps you from pain or not, in the end, we are told, do not fear, because while we don't have control, he does. And while we cannot script what is to come, he can. And while our greatest fear might seem like the end of all things, they aren't. And though he might seem uncaring about the darkness in which we reside, he does. This is why Advent must start in the dark, because it is in the dark where light shines brightest. God has proven to us that he is in control. He has proven to us that he sees us in the darkness. And the reason why I can say that with confidence And the reason why we do not have to fear the darkness is because of Jesus. He is the one who in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is because to Israel, 
God can say, do not fear. I will not forget you as my people for your Savior is coming. It is God saying to Mary and Joseph, do not fear for your Savior is here. It is God saying to you and to me, do not fear because your Savior has come. And by his Spirit, he is with you right now. You do not have to fear because as verse 23 tells us in our passage, Jesus comes to save his people. He is God with us even in the worst of situations. And this has proven his love, his concern, his control of all things. And there are so many comforting promises related to this control. A couple of them, Ephesians 1 says that in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Even in the midst of our greatest fears, nothing is happening outside of his purposes and his will. He is truly in control. And when you couple that with the promise of Romans 8, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, trusting him does not necessarily mean that we will not experience suffering and disappointment, but trusting him means that even in the midst of those worst nightmares, he is able to use those nightmares ultimately long-term for our good. I don't understand how that works. And I have experienced personally and have watched others experience situations where I cannot even begin to understand how that works. And I know it's not an easy promise to cling to, especially when things are hard. And I don't know all the reasons why God does what he does. I don't understand why God allows all that he allows. But the one thing I do know is that it's not because he doesn't care. And I know that to be true because he sent his son to come and to take sin and to take shame and to take the brokenness and to take fear. He takes it to the cross. He goes to the grave and then he's raised up from the dead so that we might know that all the causes of our fear are ultimately defeated. In the end, long-term, defeated. This is what it means to have Emmanuel, God with us. That he has been with us and will be with us in all things. That in the end, long-term, he is working all things for our good and for his glory. And that is our hope. That is why he says, do not fear. And so I just end with the simple words, the famous words that we all know from Psalm 23, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me.